This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Greetings from snow-shrouded New York City. This is episode 2.27. There was a ship, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and a Christmas decoration that has been up since Halloween. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and realizing that the combination of Gundam and Winter Blues does not a happy holiday season make. Womp, 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 womp. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 267 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Ellis R., Nata Carmen, and Connor I., or possibly Connor Roman numeral one. It's a mystery. <laughs> you know, I suspect that that person whose name is not a Carmen might actually be a Carmen. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. We also recently set up a Ko-fi page for anyone who would like to support the podcast with a one-time payment rather than an ongoing subscription. You can check it out at ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. We have a brief announcement. Uh, Mobile Suit Breakdown is taking a break while we travel and spend some time with family. So there will not be a new episode next week or the week after, December 21st and 28th. We will be back to our regular release schedule in the new year with MSB episode 2.28 on January 4th, 2020. Happy holidays, and we will see you in the new year. Well, we won't see you at all. (laughs) You will experience us again. But now let's get back to Gundam. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 26, Zeon's Ghost. Before we start... For anyone who has not yet watched this week's episode of Zeta Gundam, there is a sexual assault at about the 3 minute and 30 second mark. If you'd like to avoid it, you should skip ahead to 3 minutes 45 seconds when the radish appears on screen. After the recap and our talkback, we have research on battleship bridges and the officers who die on them, as well as a hard-to-translate phrase, and a farewell. But first, we have the Titans News Network to remind you what happened last week. Welcome back to TVN, the Titans Value Network, where our deals are always in danger of catching space madness because they are out of this world. (laughs) Wow, I am just loving all these seriously great deals on original pre-Universal Century artwork. That was our last Old Masters painting for today, but I'll be back in a few hours with a magnificent collection of authentic Ming Dynasty ceramics at prices so low, they're practically criminal. (laughs) And to answer the question from our caller just before the break, 
Don't worry where they came from, it's not important. Stop trying to ruin everyone's good time. Ha ha ha. Uh-oh, that sound means it's time for my favorite segment, Dangerously Delicious Deals on Government Surplus, with my special guest, Lieutenant Tom Thompson. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on the program, Lieutenant Nina's daughter. It's great to be back. What do you have for us today? This is one of my all-time best deals, with a product that is absolutely going to leave your audience shocked and awed. This is the sort of thing that makes you say, wait, can the Titans really sell that? And to that I say, <laughs> of course we can. We run the whole Federation now. We can sell whatever we want and you can buy it today. Well, don't leave us in suspense, Lieutenant. What is it? Okay, okay, okay. Answer me this. Have you ever wanted to own your own colony? Oh my gosh, only every day of my adult life. Well, now you can by buying one of our Titans certified, pre-owned, slightly used, refurbished colonies today. We've got open type colonies. We've got closed type colonies. We've got colonies originally intended for livestock and recreation. We've got colonies from Moore, Hattie, Munzo, Zahn, and Loom. You want a colony? You can have a colony. And with our generous leasing terms, you may be eligible to take possession with no money down and no payments for the first year. What are the interest rates like? <laughs> Who can bother to worry about a little thing like that when they're staring down at a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity like this? Now, a lot of these colonies are fixer-uppers, but that just means that you can really make it your own. Call today. No, call now, because these babies are going fast. And if you call in the next 14 minutes and 38 seconds, we'll deliver your colony to you for no added cost. All colonies are sold sight unseen. No returns, but if you are unsatisfied with your colony, you may exchange it for a colony of equal or lesser value. The Titans do not guarantee that your colony will be inhabitable or structurally sound. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Lee, Mr. Wong Lee. Yeah, this is Federation Express shipping. We got a... Uh... A very large package to deliver you. Says it's, uh, says it's from the Titans Value Network. Could you, uh, come out and sign for it? Mr. Lee? Okay, folks, it sounds like he's not home. Just, uh, just, uh, toss it on his porch, I guess. We got, like, four more of these colonies to deliver today, and dispatch is really riding my... And now the recap for Zeon's Ghost. After foiling Jamaican's attempt to destroy Granada with a falling colony, the Ayug battleships split up. The Argama shadows Sroko's Dogos gear on its mysterious trajectory, while the Radish pursues Jamaican's Alexandria. The Ayug captains seem distracted. Beckner tries again with Emma, asking her to join him for a cup of tea, but she declines, to the amusement of the bridge crew. Meanwhile, Bright is puzzled by the Dogos gear. He can tell it's different from the other Titan's ships and Camille's new type intuition confirms those suspicions. Aboard the Alexandria, Yazan and Jamaican argue. Aggressive and brash, Yazan has already begun preparing his squad for a raid without orders. Jamaican challenges him, but Yazan is uncowed, and Jamaican tells him to do as he pleases. Yazan singles out one of his wingmen, Chief Petty Officer Adol, and reveals something of his real plan. Their raid is only a feint, 
designed to draw the Radish and the Alexandria close enough for a direct engagement, one that will teach Jamaican the feeling of real combat. He leaves Adol to prepare, but only after abusing and demeaning the younger officer. They launch, and the Radish scrambles interceptors led by Emma in the Mark II. Spotting an opportunity, Katz boards the unoccupied G Defensor, a kind of space fighter. When he tries to launch, without orders, of course, Captain Beckner permits it, saying that it will be a good opportunity to test Katz's abilities. The battle takes them close to a derelict Xeon battleship of the Guazine class. As the Ayug and Titan's pilots dogfight around the wreck, Camille wakes with a start. He has sensed the battle, sensed Emma's peril. He tells Bright about his premonition, requests permission to take the Zeta Gundam and fly to assist his friends. Bright, seeing much of Amuro and Camille, gives his blessing. Emma and Katz struggle, but Camille's arrival evens the odds. In the chaos, Katz's ship is damaged, and he's forced to make an emergency landing aboard the derelict Guazine. Adol abandons his own damaged Hyzak to pursue him, and Emma leaves the Mark II to go after them both, while Camille keeps Yazan busy. At that moment, with little regard for the risk of hitting his own forces, Jamaican orders the Alexandria's gunners to open fire on the Radish. Their powerful beams rake the derelict Guazine. Yazan is nearly hit, but manages to dodge out of the way at the last second. As Camille and Yazan's duel takes them inside the Guazine, Katz and Emma are caught off guard and held at gunpoint by Adol until a stray beam from the Alexandria tears through the compartment, killing the young Titan. Camille and Yazan fight with beam sabers in the hangar of the Guazine, but the distance is too close. They brawl, and the Zeta is overpowered. It's only when Katz, hotwiring a wrecked mobile suit in the Guazine's hangar, manages to fire its bazooka at the Gaplant that Camille gets the upper hand. Yazan flees back to the Alexandria, but then he stops, letting his damaged mobile suit drift right in front of the battleship's bridge. As Jamaican hurls abuse at him and Emma trains her powerful cannon on his Gaplant, Yazan growls, Fire, Gundam. Don't miss your target. She fires, and at the last second, Yazan dodges. The beam passes cleanly through the Alexandria's bridge, disintegrating Lieutenant Commander Jamaican Donninghan. With Camille and the crew of the Radish watching, the Guazine at last explodes, bathing them all in a warm light as an inexpressible emotion passes across Captain Beckner's face. But on the Argama, Captain Bright receives intelligence. The Titans have joined with remnants from the Principality of Xeon to establish a new space fortress out of what was once Abao Aku. We need to begin with a content warning. There is an assault in this episode. Uh, I found it pretty upsetting the first time I saw it. It's quite shocking. It's quite unexpected and shocking. Uh, so if that's a thing that you don't want to see, uh, skip ahead in the episode. We are going to talk about it, but not so much in the details of the thing itself too much, more about what we think it says about the world and particular characters. When we get there, we'll be discussing what happens and our thoughts on it, as well as the implications thereof, pretty frankly. But we'll try to keep our discussion of that particular event constrained to just that section of the podcast, and I'll include a warning so that you can skip past that section if you'd prefer not to hear it. After watching 50, 60-some episodes of Gundam, however many we've covered at this point, I've started to get a sense for the rhythm 
of how these episodes go and how they're divided up. And for most episodes, it works out to being what I would estimate is about 40% prelude, 50% combat, and then 10% denouement after the combat. This episode is almost entirely combat. The prelude and the denouement together make up maybe 15% of the episode. For those of you for whom it's been some years since you took high school English, uh, denouement refers to the part of the story after the climax. It's what we think of as the wrapping up, right? Like the climax is really the emotional and narrative height of the thing, but there's usually a period of wrapping up after where we sort of like gently transition from that height of feeling, from that height of excitement to something a little like calmer that feels like finishing, tying the bow on the whole thing. It's a very useful term, I find, when talking (laughs) about stories on TV, but it's definitely one of those words from high school English that I wouldn't use much otherwise. And here, that's Camille and Beckner and Emma and Katz all on the bridge discussing how the battle went, and then they watch as the Xeon battleship, the Guazine, explodes in the background. And Beckner gets a look on his face like he's having some quite strong emotions seeing that battleship exploding. So both of us, as soon as this episode was over, mentioned that one of the main things we want to talk about is how this is an episode about history and how the story as a whole and this episode in particular are a metaphor for both Zeta vis-a-vis First Gundam but also just history generally, that everything we do is in the ruins of past events. And I think it is very significant that shortly after Beckner has mentioned that Quattro is returning to them. A tidbit, by the way, that although he doesn't say anything, makes Katz so happy to hear. Katz and Camille both start grinning the moment he says it. There's huge smiles on their faces. Katz mentioned earlier in the episode that he seems to think if Quattro were around, he would get to pilot more. And I think Katz is probably right about that. Quattro is all about pushing the young possible new types out into battle and seeing what happens. I just think it's very significant that, you know, the long lost ace of the one year war is returning to them And they are watching this glorious explosion that lights up all of their faces. It illuminates them all. Uh, And it's an explosion of a battleship from that era, a ship from that war, a ship from Xeon, which is supposed to be gone, but which we know there are remnants remaining. It is really the ghost of the One Year War, the ghost of Xeon, coming back to life, coming back to them in the form of this ship and in the form of Quattro Char and... (laughs) And Zeta, the show, and this war between Ayug and the Titans. There's also the mention of Abawaku being repurposed, that former members of the Principality of Zeon have teamed up with the Titans in order to turn Abawaku and Grips into a new space fortress. The ghost of the One Year War still lingers, and this whole conflict in Zeta is happening in the wreckage of that war. And no wonder it's such an emotional experience for Beckner to see that battleship destroyed. He's a veteran of the war. He remembers fighting against ships just like the Guazine. And to be a bit postmodern about all of this, Zeta cannot be taken on its own merits. It exists in the remnants of First Gundam. There is no way to extricate Zeta from First Gundam. There's no way to look at Zeta without referencing First Gundam and how First Gundam affected it. Uh, It cannot exist on its own. 
I did wonder, and I imagine you know, what is the mobile suit that Katz gets into that's in the hangar of the closet? Oh, that's a Gelgoog. It's a Gelgoog? Okay. Gelgoog. Gelgoog. Um, we hope you all noticed the little Easter egg. There's a label on a bit of debris that flies <laughs> past that says, Made in Sunrise, CU Limited, Omake of Groko. If you've been around anime and manga long enough, you've probably heard the term omake before, and it means like a side project. This was a new term for me. I was not familiar. So this makes me think there was actually some kind of story behind this particular Easter egg. Something to do with an omake made by someone who goes by the name Groko. But it's hard to imagine what that might be, since you know this is a main episode of the main story of Zeta. It's agony. When you can look at something and know there's a story behind it and have no way of figuring out what it is. (laughs) We won't talk too much about the battle itself, but I will say it's a very exciting, very tense at times, very well executed battle scene. And especially after Katz fires off the flare bomb that lights up the whole setting, they do a lot of really interesting things with the lighting and the colors, especially the way people's faces are lit. It gets very stark and striking, quite beautiful. I also thought there was great back and forth. There's a great feeling of flow to the whole thing. We also see Camille doing something he's done in the past, especially when he was fighting Lila, which is that when he's having difficulty in a fight, he likes to back off, change the circumstances hide amongst the wreckage and wait for his moment. Which he is getting better and better at sensing when precisely that moment is. Even if it's not enough in this fight to turn the tide. Well, he does manage to scare Yazan away. Because while I do think that Yazan always intended for Jamaican to uh, be a casualty of this fight, (laughs) he did also have another outcome in mind. He wanted to defeat these Ayug ships. So he only got half of what he wanted. Yeah, it's safe to say that Yazan wanted to kill as many people as he could during this fight. Coming out of this episode, besides wanting to talk about the thematic importance of the Guazin as a setting and what it tells us about the lingering ghosts of Zeon, the One Year War, and First Gundam, we also really felt like we needed to talk about Yazan in particular. This episode is all about Yazan, and it gives us the clearest picture of him as a character that we've had so far. Before we get into the serious stuff, I would like Tom to uh, mention uh, he has heard who the visual design <laughs> for Yazan is based off of. Yeah, as Nina hinted at, Yazan's design is derived like Slager Laws from a Western movie and from a Western movie star. In particular, from the character Fade Harkonnen of the 1984 David Lynch Dune movie, as played by none other than rock musician Sting. And you can see that both in his character design and in his personality. And if you look at the original character sketches, it becomes even more clear. I confess I have not seen this particular Dune movie. What? I've only seen, I saw the miniseries that came out much later, the sci-fi one. All right, hang on. (laughs) We'll be right back. (laughs) Tom has to glory in it when there's a movie he's seen and I haven't because it doesn't happen very often. (laughs) So he makes a really big deal out of it. 
Yazan has a very forceful personality, and that's been true since his first introduction into the show. He's clearly supposed to be a pretty important character. Yeah, there's a neat little connection that I thought of watching his scenes at the beginning of this episode, especially that one he has with Jamaican at the very beginning of the episode, because it's really similar to the scene that Sirocco shares with those unnamed Federation officers. And we have Yazan set up as a kind of parallel Sirocco. He's a young, flashy, charismatic, aggressive Titans officer, a junior officer, um, who is constantly grating on the nerves of the by-the-book, fuddy-duddy, mustachioed senior officers. In many ways, he's a contrast to Jared, because Jared's reaction when he's shut down by someone is kind of to, to shut down himself and to step back or storm away or, you know. And Jamaican thinks this shows a lack of spirit. Of course, this is impossible for Jared to navigate because push too hard and you're insubordinate. Which is what he says about Yazan. Right. Yazan is the opposite pole, but Yazan winds up getting to do what he wants to do. Clearly, Jamaican thinks Yazan is a loose cannon and insubordinate, but he does let Yazan do what he wants. Ditto with Sirocco. Yazan and Sirocco are both more suited to this weird pseudo world of warfare than a Jamaican is. Jamaican is a perfectly adequate officer for peacetime, but when it comes to war, he doesn't have a warlike nature. He's cruel. Jamaican's not a good person. He's not a peaceful person. He's a violent, evil person who has no regard for human life, but he's not warlike. And you can tell that Yazan has perceived this, and that's where a lot of his disrespect comes from. He tells Adol, before he assaults Adol, that he feels Jamaican just doesn't have any skin in the game. Jamaican never puts himself on the line. He is never in any danger. He is never in the battle. There's no personal risk. And because of that, he really doesn't understand combat, to Yazan's perspective. And given his lack of success, <laughs> Yazan may be right. Yazan's idea of what combat is and how you should interact with it as, a, as an emotional being is a theme that runs through this whole episode. Mm -hmm. Well, Nyazan is, to be fair, not terribly successful either. <laughs> so <laughs> All his absolute lunatic courage doesn't get him very far, although it does get him what he really wants by the end of the episode. Jamaican dead and effectively a free hand. I believe we've come to the point where we need to address the assault that happens. I agree. Our discussion runs approximately 5 minutes and 30 seconds. If you would prefer not to hear it, you can skip ahead to the transition noise at 28 minutes, 45 seconds. Yazan takes Adol aside. I don't remember Adol's rank. It's a petty officer or an ensign, something like that. And uh, Yazan is a lieutenant, is telling him that their tactics are going to involve leading the enemy back toward the Alexandria to get the Alexandria involved in the fight. And then he grabs Adol's crotch. And Adol is clearly shocked. He goes, uh, it, Lieutenant, but freezes, because what What are you going to do in that situation? His facial expression is shock, horror, doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And then uh, Yazan comments on the shrunkenness of Adol's penis. He's like, we're not even in combat yet, and you're already shrunken. You can do better than that. Uh, as yeah. if this is an indication of Adol's lack of bravery. 
And then he coasts off and leaves Adol looking rather stunned. This is part of Yazan's whole rough, violent idea of masculinity that he expresses throughout the episode and through his whole being. It comes up again later when Yazan is shocked to encounter Emma on the battlefield. A woman! And it comes up again when he's talking to Camille and he describes Ayug as a pathetic organization that relies on women and children instead of men. It's the unspoken third leg of that tripod. And when he's rocketing into the fight with Adol, he makes a comment about not panicking, not being scared. Like You shouldn't be feeling anything in the battle except excitement and rage. Feelings like that. Like the whole tone, the whole way in which that's presented is not supportive. It's not like when we get out there, you can't panic because that's really dangerous. It's more of a, ah, the ones who panic are the ones who die. You better not panic, kid. By the way, if you get hit by any bullets, it's coming out of your wages. (laughs) Everyone who's not like me is pathetic. And this is flatly contrary to what Emma says to Adol when he's holding her up in the bridge of the Guazine as they're being fired on by the Alexandria. And she says, you must not be accustomed to battle yet. We are all scared. Being scared is natural. Being scared is normal and you deal with it. Whereas for Yazans, like you don't feel those things. Those feelings are not part of your being. And it's this emotionally locked down, hyper-aggressive, ultra-violent idea of masculinity that Yazan expresses and that you can hear in his voice and see in his character design. Part and parcel with that is this, like, obsession with being hyper-masculinized. This emphasis on the male genital anatomy, on the over-exaggerated size and strength of those external shows of masculinity and a total lack of concern although this is portrayed more subtly uh for interpersonal relationships it's been a long time since we've seen a commander show such total disregard for hey what happened to my wingman (laughs) he uh doesn't even seem to notice no he doesn't but that's unusual right in especially in this episode where it's contrasted with camille And he gets yelled at a little bit by Emma, but he refuses to leave Emma and Katz behind. He's only there because he sensed that they were in danger and flew however far to come help them. And he and Emma work it out very nicely afterwards. She's like, I'm sorry I yelled at you. I think sometimes you get too focused on helping other people in combat instead of focusing on the mission, which sometimes requires you to not think about everybody else. Uh, And he's like, no, you're right. I should like, it's this very nice interaction, including then with Katz, who's like, "Ugh, I bet you're all mad at me. I bet you're all going to like yell at me. (laughs) And they're like, Katz, you did us a solid today. Thank you. It's not our job to yell at you. Be prepared in case Beckner does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you did come out without orders, but like we can tell you thank you. And it hasn't been that long since we saw Jared with Siddeley and Sarah and Moar. Jared as the mentor figure. And before that, it was Quattro and Amaro with Camille and Katz as mentor figures. The role of the mentor figure, the older pilot, the more experienced, the more skilled pilot, and the younger has been a recurring theme in Zeta. So it's really interesting and really weird and kind of a subversion of that now see Yazan with Adol and how uh, 
abusive and unconcerned Yazan is. Yazan's assault on Edol made me think of portrayals, uh, you know, things that I've seen and heard and read about because I haven't experienced them myself, but of hazing in all male or like vast majority male groups. So hazing in sports teams, in fraternities, in the military. Uh, well, it's it's intimate, it's humiliating, and it expresses completely the power of the group over the individual's body. Right. I was going to say it's such a an exercise of power over another person. You have nothing that is yours. And nothing you can do about this. I don't know if the story means it this way, but there's a moment in this episode that for me highlights that running thread of well, yes, these guys are maybe better, but that doesn't mean they're good. <laughs> that runs through so much of Tomino's work because we have Yazan and clearly Yazan is awful. But Bright looks at Camille and he sees, oh, Camille is being obedient. Camille is not talking back. Camille is following orders. Camille seems to have positive interpersonal relationships with other members of the crew. Great. That means I never have to worry about Camille again. <laughs> I can just focus on my work and I never have to worry about this, what, 16-year-old ever again? He's 17. Okay. Um, which is just so completely wrongheaded. <laughs> I understand it. This is the principle behind so much of the theory of misbehaving young people, right? Like when you misbehave, you get parental attention. When you don't misbehave, uh, your parents are like, ah, oh, great. Everything is fine here. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Obviously, not always the case, but it is one of the um, tropes, right? One of the sort of reused tropes that we see in storytelling that have to do with like troublemakers versus you know, young people who quote unquote behave. I find it very interesting that they do not make a contrast. They choose not to contrast the violence that Yazan uses against Idol with the violence that we've seen members of AUG experience. It's different, I grant you, but it is about control. It is about humiliation. And they've been free enough with it at other points, and yet they do not contrast that here. And there is an opportunity, right? Cats, cats breaks the rules. And it wasn't that long ago that he helped an enemy escape. So it's not like he's kind of on thin ice here. It would not have been shocking if Beckner had slapped him. Although I don't think we've ever seen Beckner hit anybody. No, we haven't. Beckner is um, pretty passive and hands off as a commander, all things considered, at least as far as discipline is concerned. Mm hmm. When Katz is taking off in the G-Defensor early on in this episode, Beckner just says, I'll let him go. It'll be a good test of his abilities, which is startlingly similar to things that he said earlier about Camille. But then we also have Emma. We've seen Emma hit people before. We've seen Emma hit Fa and Camille. And here she says, oh, that's not my job, which feels like an interesting change. Yeah. Or it feels like a significant change. In this episode, we see both Bright and Beckner looking for any excuse to not have to be captains, to not have to discipline their crew members. Bright is looking for an excuse to not talk to Camille. Beckner is looking for an excuse to not punish cats. Although I think from those characters' perspectives, what you're describing is not, in fact, being a captain. They're both looking for excuses not to have to serve as a father figure mm. <laughs> to these young men. They're looking for excuses not to have to fulfill that role. 
which was, you know, thrust upon them is not, they didn't know they were going to have underage pilots when they started out um, and got kind of stuck with them. And so I think they do have a sense that, oh, I should probably be like a more hands-on with these young people because they're not done being parented yet. They're like, they're not really adults in a, in a sense. And But also I don't want to. And so as long as they're functioning fine as soldiers, then I think I'll just uh, let it be. Given the the contrast that's kind of set up in this episode between the Titans and Ayug, do you think the episode wants us to attribute some of those differences to the involvement of women and children in Ayug? Because hmm. Yazan brings it up and Camille sort of bristles at it, even though he has also at times been like, wow, there's a lot of women <laughs> in Ayug. <laughs> Yeah, Camille doesn't exactly disagree with Yazan. He just says, well, it's the Titan's fault that Ayug has to use women and children. But is it in fact a strength? Is the position of the show that it is in fact a strength of Ayug that there are women and children involved, that it's not just men running the show? I think it has to be. The portrayal of Yazan's masculinity is both so clear and so negative. So repugnant. It's hard to imagine that the show thinks... Ayug or anybody would be better off being more like Yazan. And it clearly doesn't serve Idol well. You know, he's terrified, he's alone, and then he dies by friendly fire. Whereas Emma is so calm, so collected. She saves cats. Cats saves Camille. Camille saves both of them. Everybody on the Ayug side survives because they all come to save each other. Right. Like there's this wonderful sense of interdependence in a positive way between them all. And that they all bring something to the table, even though like Katz is so inexperienced, he doesn't even know which buttons to push to use the weapons. But the G-Defenser helps Emma. He brings it to her and it is a big help. I mean, it's hard to think of a clearer metaphor for teamwork than Katz bringing the G-Defenser, which literally combines with Emma's mobile suit in order to be stronger. And then thinking, oh, there must be a mobile suit I can use to help on this ship and being able to hotwire it back to life. Again, it's it's only a momentary distraction. He could not have handled all of this on his own, but it is enough. And Camille is happy to credit it with saving his bacon. So whereas over on the Titan side, everyone is obsessed with independence, prestige, status, honor, individual success. And what does it get them? A bunch of dead pilots and Yazan gets Jamaican killed. And their ship pretty horribly damaged because they got fired on through the bridge. Well, and Yazan is angry with Jamaican in the first place because he correctly perceives Jamaican as using the Alexandria's resources, using Yazan to try to make up for his own personal failures for the sake of his own personal career. Mm -hmm. This only just occurred to me when we were talking about the G-Defensor and that combination sequence, but they have a lot of difficulty at first getting the timing right figuring out the timing of, of this team up. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to figure out how to coordinate with somebody who's so different from you, but they manage it in the end. But this is not the first time that bad timing has come up in this episode. Early on, Beckner finally gets explicit and asks Emma to have tea with him. Indeed. <laughs> and she says no. And the guys on the bridge hearing this say, oh, his timing is bad. It's bad timing. Timing Gawarui. Well, presumably because they've been talking about work. They've been talking about 
you know, is the G defensor ready? Do we feel like it's prepared? Have you done enough simulations? Okay, we'll launch it in whatever our next fight is. You know, it's been all shop talk. And then he just blurts out, would you have tea with me? As she's already leaving. And uh, and it's not like, mm, uh, you know, there's no uncertainty here. She says, dame. <laughs> dame des. And dame means something like, I must not. I or, should not. Or like incorrect. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Impossible. It's not quite no, but it's effectively no. With some of those extra shades of like, that would be a bad idea. There's another contrast here, actually, because as Katz and Emma are struggling, at the very same moment, Yazan and Adol flank the two of them so that they can, like, funnel them towards a third pilot and directly into the line of fire. But we see that for all that Yazan and Adol seem to work well together for a while, (laughs) they quickly lose the thread of that. Because before you know it, they're each fighting completely separate fights, where before they were this team that was working together quite effectively against a single or against two mobile suits. Once they get split up, they lose that. And there's no sense that either of them has realized this. There's no sense that either of them is like, oh, wait, I should stick with the other person. Like, that's a much stronger position to be in. Whereas even after Emma and the G-Defensor have combined and Katz has gone off in the little shuttle... Even though Emma has gotten all the benefit of this team up, she still looks for cats and then even gets out of her mobile suit to go looking for him on foot when she realizes that he's in trouble. Well, and he doesn't veer off because he's doing his own thing. He winds up over on the Guazine because he gets swatted by Yazan. <laughs> I believe it damages the core fighter such that he, he can't quite pilot it the way he wants to and he needs to land. And that's what sets him to looking for another mobile suit somewhere on the Guazine. You know, there's even some more to this theme of splitting up and coming back together. I'm realizing as we talk about it, because the episode opens, although it's never stated explicitly, with the Argama and the Radish having split up so they can pursue the two different Titans' forces. The Argama going after the Dogos Gear and the Radish going after the Alexandria. And yet, when they're in trouble, because of Camille's new type abilities, because of this connection that he's formed with Emma, he knows they're in trouble and he's able to come help. And at this point, he's willing to acknowledge, for all that he goes through all the steps of getting ready, you know, in the process of this, he's willing to acknowledge that Bright sort of has to let him go, right? (laughs) He can't just hair off by himself. And he's earned Bright's trust so that Bright says, ah, You're having one of those sensations that you have sometimes. You're feeling something that none of the rest of us are feeling. But I believe you. I believe that it's real. And I respect it enough to say, yes, go launch, do the thing. If Wong Lee had been there, Emma and Katz would be dead. This is when Bright says Camille reminds him of Amaro. Now, that's a thing people said all the time at the beginning of the show. But they've kind of stopped saying it. Since actual real Amaro showed up in the show, people had stopped affiliating Camille with Amaro. And even Amaro looking at Camille was like, oh, he's nothing like me, which is great. (laughs) This is, I believe, the first time that somebody who actually knew Amaro as a person and not just as an enemy pilot has looked at Camille and said, he's behaving like Amaro. In a lot of ways, the Camille that we're seeing now is very like the 
supposed to break down Amaro, right? Like Amaro goes through some things, has a bit of a, let's call it, rebellious phase. But when he comes back, he, in a lot of ways, becomes the consummate, like, good crew member. And similarly, Camille has had his ups and downs. He's had his sort of struggles and little rebellions along the way, but has become a good crew member who also has this ability that, you know, pops up out of nowhere. You can't really plan on using it because you don't know when it will be there, but that is useful. And Camille is now experienced enough with it. And you talked about Bright trusting Camille, but there's reciprocity there too. Camille trusts Bright enough to be able to say, I've had this feeling. I can tell that Emma's in danger. I've had this feeling. I can tell there's something different about the Dogos gear. Exactly. I'm just thinking about that scene again where they talk about the Dogos gear. I get the sense that Bright, he is also dealing with the ghosts of the one-year war. He is dealing with the memory of his first captaincy and the difficulties of that and the complicated relationships that came out of it because he wasn't much older than anyone else. He was much uh, closer to all that crew. And some of his interactions with Camille feel to me like an attempt to maintain appropriate distance. It's less about Camille lacking discipline and more about uh, wanting to make sure he's not treating Camille too much like a friend or a son and Camille's not treating him too much like a pal, that there is this uh, appropriate captain-pilot relationship. Because he is there talking about the Dogos gear, Camille comes up and makes a comment uh, and he cuts Camille off and he's like, why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't invite you into this conversation about the Dogos gear. I didn't ask you what you thought about it. Why are you here to talk to me? And Camille makes his report. And then as he's leaving, Bright says, okay, now what did you want to say about the Dogos gear? Like he's trying to make sure Camille doesn't get too informal, too friendly. Do you remember around when in First Gundam, Amuro had his breakdown, his rebellious phase, and then returned to the crew? I do not. It was somewhere around episodes like... 18 to 25. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is episode 26. For anyone who's lost count, we are on episode 26 of Zeta. This is very small, but I want to close with one really neat visual from this episode. There's a moment when Katz is being attacked by a Hyzak, and they do a close-up of the Hyzak's face, and it zooms in on the mono-eye. And you can see the face of the Titan's pilot in the mono eye. Ooh. Yeah. It's real cool and real spooky. There were no bodies. Just that empty spacesuit. Right. There's an empty normal suit floating through the bridge, but not a single body, which I thought was odd. But maybe they just didn't want to draw a bunch of corpses. I could understand that. But First Gundam was not exactly shy about showing us dead people. And there were a handful of Zeta episodes that opened with the corpse of a Zeon soldier drifting through space. So, yeah. But if there were bodies, if there were corpses in the Guazine, then it would start to feel like horror. And I don't think horror is the emotion that they're trying to evoke with this old ship and the ruined mobile suits and and the empty normal suits. I think they're trying to make it feel morose, not morbid. Like it's supposed to be spooky in a weight of history kind of way, but not in a gore kind of way yeah this is the ghost of a dream this is the weight of history bearing down upon you there's no room for 
individual human people and the frailty of human bodies in the historical memory of the war. It's true. The inclusion of like dead soldiers might make it all feel too human and too personal when the point is like the vastness of space and time, which is about as impersonal as a thing can be. There's no room for the people in the legacy of Xeon. And now our research on battleship bridges and the captains who die on them, a difficult-to-translate phrase, and a farewell. Back in First Gundam's episode 20, when Ramba Rall and his commandos boarded the white base, his plan to seize control of the ship was premised on the existence of a second redundant bridge called the Combat Bridge, which he intended to occupy. It was there, wounded and trapped, where he met his final end. The combat bridge would not go on to be a major feature in First Gundam or in Zeta so far, but we know that the practice of building warships with a second redundant bridge was not exclusive to Pegasus-class assault carriers like the White Base. In Episode 5, after the Alexandria's bridge is damaged by enemy fire, Captain Gadi, and yes, it is Gadi, my apologies for calling him Gady, orders the command staff to transfer to the, quote, second bridge. Over on the Ayug side, while we don't have any evidence yet showing the existence of a secondary bridge, if you watch carefully, you can see that the superstructure on the Argama, that's the sort of tower on which the bridge is perched, as well as the rotating crew quarters, those retract into the ship proper whenever it enters combat, presumably to make it a smaller and better protected target. The warship designers and Space Navy officers of the Universal Century are not insensitive to the dangers of the exposed main bridge. And yet, for all that, Jamaican is still standing on the exposed main bridge when Yazan dodges out of the way and Emma vaporizes the Alexandria's bridge and everyone on it. The term bridge for the command center of a ship comes from the early 1800s and the development of the steam-powered paddle-wheel-driven ship. Commanding a ship has always been about a balance between visibility, both of the ship and of what is around the ship, and proximity to the relevant systems. On sailing ships, those factors combined to put the command post on the raised quarterdeck toward the rear of the ship. This position gave the captain a clear view of the ship's sails, and since the sails were up high enough to be out of the way, it also gave him a clear view of the seas around the ship. It was also where, for purely mechanical reasons, the pilot needed to be. Throughout most of the history of sailing, with no technology for remote control, steering a ship meant that whatever device the pilot was operating had to be physically connected to the rudder. A tiller is just a handle that is attached directly to the rudder, and early ship's wheels had to be connected to the rudder via ropes or chains. But with the introduction of steam-powered paddle wheels installed on the sides of the ship around midship, the quarterdeck ceased to be a useful command post. First of all, the sails were gone, and so there was no more need to pick a position from which they could be observed. And for another, the paddle wheels, the machinery that drove them, and the enclosures, called paddle houses, that protected them blocked the view of everything else. It now became vital to be able to inspect the paddle wheels from up close, and to be able to command the engine room, which itself had to be near the paddle wheels for efficiency and near the middle of the ship so that its weight could be evenly distributed. 
Thus, a raised platform was built that connected the two paddle houses. It formed a kind of bridge between them, and this new bridge offered the visibility and proximity that captains needed. Initially, the captain would pass commands to the pilot, who was still posted near the rudder. He would also pass commands to the engine room and to the guns if they were on a warship and so on. But as technologies for remote steering improved, the pilot moved up to the bridge as well, and steadily other functions became centralized, at least up to the limit of the technology of the time. Now, naturally, all manner of instruments were installed where the captain, pilot, and other officers were gathered, and those had to be protected from the elements, so the bridge became an increasingly elaborate, mostly enclosed structure. When ships began to be built of iron and then steel, that vast bulk of ferrous metal in the hull interfered with magnetic compasses, and this spurred the addition above the bridge of a tower called the Compass Platform, far enough away from the hull that it minimized the interference. This also doubled as an open-air lookout platform and was sometimes called either a flying bridge or a fair-weather bridge, and it offered vantage points that were even higher than the regular bridge, from which the conning officer, that's the officer charged with conducting the ship's operations, could give orders. More observation platforms were added, more systems were installed as technology advanced, and bridges grew more and more complex and indispensable. But at the same time that all of this was happening, naval guns were getting bigger, the shells were getting heavier, and they were packed with powerful explosive charges that were designed to penetrate armor. Warship armor became thicker, heavier. Warship designs increasingly adopted a system called all-or-nothing armor, it was originally pioneered by the United States Navy, and in this scheme, the warship was essentially a completely unarmored hull built around a much smaller, all-but-impenetrable armored box. This armored box was sometimes called the Citadel. It was located amidships, underneath the bridge, and it contained all the vital systems, from engine compartments to ammunition magazines, and it had enough buoyancy that even if the regular hull was all shot to pieces and full of water, the ship could, in theory, continue to float. Still, the bridge, by its very nature, with the windows and the visibility and the systems, could only be armored so much. To solve this problem, naval designers of the late 1800s through to World War II built heavily armored secondary bridges called conning towers in front of and below the main bridge. These were like floating bunkers, with armor plate that could be more than a foot thick and enough space inside, barely, for a handful of the most essential officers, some rudimentary equipment, and speaking tubes to give orders to the rest of the ship. Visibility, which again, is the whole point of the bridge, was available only through tiny slit windows. And therein lay the problem. The whole point of the conning tower was that it protected the ship's commanding officers so that they could continue to give orders during battle. But they could only give effective orders if they could see what was going on and had ready access to the instruments that augmented their view of the battlefield with information beyond mere sight. The conning tower might have kept them safe, but it made them useless and many captains and admirals simply opted not to use them. And despite all the armor, the conning tower didn't necessarily guarantee safety. By all reports, Vice Admiral Inoguchi Toshihira was inside the conning tower of the super battleship Musashi, probably the most heavily armored space at sea at that time, 
when U.S. bombs fell on the battleship's superstructure, and he was gravely wounded, dying shortly after. Ultimately, no amount of battleship armor was sufficient to protect from a bombing run from above. There's also in all of this a certain element of like command theory and command philosophy, I feel, where as the commander, you also need to be on the battlefield in a way. And if you're in too protected a position, there's a sense that you're not really in it. <laughs> you're not really leading from on the field, as it were. It looks bad. Mm -hmm. It's probably much better for morale for everyone to see you there on the exposed bridge where you're also in danger than for you to be in what is effectively a bunker. Yeah, I think that's true. I didn't find any references that said that specifically, okay. but a lot of the language that they used to talk about officers who either were or weren't in the conning tower mm -hmm. suggests that that was an undercurrent psychologically for a lot of these officers, that it was sort of cowardice, that they disdained the use of the conning tower. And also, if the ship goes down... It doesn't matter if you're in the conning tower or not. I should note that besides the conning tower and the bridge, warships from this era also incorporated an elevated command post from which the big guns of the ship could be centrally controlled. These were armored, although nowhere near as much as the conning tower, and they were placed as high up on the ship as possible. More height meant more visibility, and that directly correlated to longer effective range for the ship's guns. In a bid to maximize this, the Japanese built enormously tall structures on their ships, studded with platforms, lookouts, shelters, searchlights, and so on. And these were built on top of a reinforced steel tripod. They resembled, and were called, pagoda masts. In a sci-fi, space war sort of setting, one where cameras, view screens, sensors, and monitors have altogether displaced the big glass window and the human eyeball as the principal instruments for commanding a warship, an exposed bridge wouldn't offer too many advantages. But hey, this is Gundam. Kore wa Gundam da yo. Realm of the Minovsky Particle, where mobile suits fight in close visual range, and battleships are effectively invisible at range until they open fire. A raised, exposed bridge on the Alexandria or the Argama offers all of the same advantages as did the raised, exposed bridges of 20th century warships, like the Bismarck, Yamato, or Iowa. I'm reminded of the multiple scenes in Zeta where they talk about having spotters out in space, keeping a lookout for debris that could be dangerous. It's very much like someone up on a crow's nest keeping lookout. Yeah. In quite a few scenes, both on the Alexandria and the Argama, we've had the captains like waiting until the right moment to fire because they know that as soon as they fire, they give away their position, but that until they fire, they might as well be invisible. But these exposed bridges had all of the same dangers as well. Three U.S. admirals were killed during World War II. All of them died when their bridges came under enemy fire. Rear Admiral Isaac Campbell Kidd took command of the battleship Arizona during the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he oversaw its defense until he was killed and the bridge destroyed by a direct hit from an enemy bomb. Rear Admirals Norman Scott and Daniel Callahan were both killed in the naval battle of Guadalcanal. Callahan when the bridge of his San Francisco was hit by enemy gunfire, and Scott, earlier in the battle, 
when the bridge of his Atlanta was torn apart by a barrage fired, mistakenly, from the San Francisco. In the same battle, the Japanese Admiral Abe Hiroaki was wounded when his bridge was raked by fire from a U.S. destroyer. A month prior to his death, Admiral Scott had commanded the U.S. force at the Battle of Cape Esperance, where combined fire from five American ships destroyed the bridge of the Japanese cruiser Aoba and killed Admiral Goto Aritomo. I could not find data on how many Japanese captains or admirals died on their bridges during the war, nor for any other country, but I found enough individual names and individual stories to know that the list would be far too long to include here. I was thrown when, after Katz illuminates the derelict Guazine with a flare, Yazan describes it as a ship from yesteryear. <laughs> In English, the word yesteryear feels formal and old-fashioned, neither of which are words I would associate with Yazan's characterization. No. So, what is he saying in Japanese? We each individually listened to this line over a dozen times, <laughs> but our ears and training coupled with Yazan's way of speaking meant that what we were hearing did not quite make sense. So we reached out to our patron community, many of them are much better Japanese speakers and listeners than we are, uh, to get some help. And thanks to patron Martin's wife Midori, we have our answer. Yazan is saying, Shinizokonai no senkan da zo. Senkan is battleship, uh, and shinizokonai means either someone who has escaped death or a failed suicide, or someone who has outlived their time, a doddering old man. So he's describing the ship as either a failed suicide, which is a pretty evocative description of Xeon forces in the One-Year War, mm. or something so old and decrepit it has outlived its time. Also that... Either way, as Martin put it, it's a very contemptuous phrase. Just dripping with disdain. And yesteryear fails to capture that contempt. To my mind, yesteryear is actually a pretty positive... It's like nostalgic. ...word, usually. Yeah, it's usually associated with positive old things. But then again, how would you translate this concept without it being too wordy? I feel like I would probably go with decrepit or derelict... But even those don't quite capture it. No, not exactly. It's very difficult. <laughs> Translation might be hard. <laughs> I definitely don't think yesteryear was the right choice, but obviously easy to pick apart the translation <laughs> in hindsight. And who knows how much time they had per episode. This may have been uh, a matter of needing to pick something, anything, and finish the work. Maybe they should have had him say, a battleship from yesteryear. Ugh, gross. I hate old things. Why, if it isn't the loser ship that should be dead? Spoilers. I've been thinking a lot about Lieutenant Commander Jamaican, or Jamaican, as we worked on this episode. He's a curious character. Weak, vain, ineffective... And while not exactly stupid, he was consistently outfoxed by his opponents and his supposed allies at every turn. 
He had a kind of managerial skill. He could organize a big fleet and keep it flying, despite the logistical difficulties of operating perpetually in hostile territory. But he lacked the ambition of a Jared, the psychopathic courage of a Yazan, or the charisma and long-term strategy of a Sirocco. He was best suited to the role he occupied, a middle manager trading on the authority of a power player like Captain Basque and keeping the younger Titans in check. This latter was the only thing that he really seemed to relish. His habitual arrogance and his casual cruelty to his subordinates were ways for him to maintain his authority over them. He made their every failure into a cudgel with which he beat them down. In this, he is emblematic of a certain view of what Zeta Gundam is really about, beneath all the porny teenage psychics. There's something about his design, even aside from his character, but all the more so when you consider who he is, that makes me think of the British Imperial Army officers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Between his height, his short blonde hair, his bushy mustache, his small eyes, and that huge forehead, he looks like the very icon of a British Imperial adventurer, in the vein of a Cecil Rhodes, David Livingston, Henry Morton Stanley, or like one of the British soldiers charged with maintaining British control over her colonial possessions. Just like Jamaican and all the rest of the Titans, it was common practice for these officers to assume the duties and receive the privileges of a higher rank, so long as they were commanding colonized territory. I could give you a list of names here, but just look at the portraits of the commanders-in-chief for places like India or Ireland or, yeah, Jamaica, and you'll see a list of officers who looked like him, thought like him, and fought like him against independence movements and full-on rebellions all across the empire. Whatever their individual merits as officers or men, their collective legacy is oppression, casual cruelty, arrogance, and strict hierarchy. Incidentally, if this is where Jamaican's design originated, then I suspect that his comically large forehead might actually be a reference to that great icon of Victorian imperialism, the pith helmet. More than anything, Jamaican now makes me think of the British poet Rudyard Kipling, perhaps the most eloquent advocate for imperialism and colonialism in the waning years of the empire whose skillful pen and musical language could not disguise the racism, the virulent anti-Semitism, and the vengeful streak that grew to dominate his character the more time passed. Some of Kipling's work is still beloved, like The Jungle Book, and I hold a particular soft spot for the heroic mongoose Rikitikitavi, even if I can now recognize that the story of a mongoose killing a whole brood of local cobras in order to protect a British family living in colonized India, was maybe a bit of an allegory for colonial security forces putting down rebellions. At the same time, poems like Gunga Din and The White Man's Burden have become shorthand for a particular breed of Eurocentric racism. The White Man's Burden in particular, a soaring exultation of imperialism written in response to the American conquest of the Philippines, inspired a bevy of parodies and satires, then and now. I especially recommend Mark Twain's essay, The Person Sitting in Darkness, which is as savage and as witty as anything that Twain wrote. He observes that the hypothetical person sitting in darkness waiting for the civilizing colonizers of Kipling's poem must be getting awfully nervous after seeing the gruesome crimes committed by the British in South Africa, the Germans in China, 
or the Americans in the Philippines. And so Twain writes, We should say to him, there have been lies, yes, but they were told in a good cause. We have been treacherous, but that was only in order that real good might come out of apparent evil. True, we have crushed a deceived and confiding people. We have turned against the weak and the friendless who trusted us. We have stamped out a just and intelligent and well-ordered republic. We have stabbed an ally in the back and slapped the face of a guest. We have bought a shadow from an enemy that hadn't it to sell. We have robbed a trusting friend of his land and his liberty. We have invited our clean young men to shoulder a discredited musket and do bandits' work under a flag which bandits have been accustomed to fear not to follow. We have debauched America's honor and blackened her face before the world, but each detail was for the best. We know this. The head of every state and sovereignty in Christendom, and 90% of every legislative body in Christendom, including our Congress and our 50 state legislatures, are members not only of the Church, but also of the Blessings of Civilization Trust. This world-girdling accumulation of trained morals, high principles, and justice cannot do an unright thing, an unfair thing, an ungenerous thing, an unclean thing. It knows what it is about. Give yourself no uneasiness. It is all right. Now then, that will convince the person. You will see. It will restore our business. Also, it will elect the master of the imperial game to the vacant place in the trinity of our national gods. And there on their high thrones the three will sit, age after age, in the people's sight, each bearing the emblem of his service. Washington, the sword of the liberator. Lincoln, the slave's broken chains. The master, the chains repaired. It will give us a splendid new start. You will see. So we offer Jamaican no tribute except this. May every good cause be opposed by enemies as ill-suited to the task as Lieutenant Commander Jamaican Donninghan. And as for Kipling, 16 years after he wrote The White Man's Burden, a poem that opens with an exhortation to his countrymen to, quote, bind your sons to exile for the sake of the empire, his own 18-year-old son John fulfilled his father's highest ideals by joining the exalted British army. He was rejected twice due to his poor eyesight, but his father called in a favor with an old friend, and John was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Irish Guards. His unit was dispatched to France, where his father was already serving as a war correspondent. Two months after finishing his training, John, with his father's bushy eyebrows and wearing a Jamaican Donninghan-style military mustache, joined the Battle of Luce and became one of the more than 48,000 British soldiers killed during those four days in September 1915. Rudyard threw himself into his work, writing propaganda about the war, but his grief snuck in around the edges, and in some of his poems from this period the mask of Victorian neo-Stoicism that he had always worn slips, and you can see hints at the brutal horrors of the war. He was posted as a correspondent aboard a Royal Navy submarine, and while he was down there in the dark, he wrote a poem. Tin Fish by Rudyard Kipling Sea Warfare The ships destroy us above, destroy us above, and ensnare us beneath. We arise, we arise, we arise, we lie down, we lie down, we lie down, we lie down, and we move, and we move in the belly of death, in the belly of death. 
The ships have a thousand eyes to mark where we come. To mark where we come, but the mirth of a seaport dies. But the mirth of a seaport dies when our blow gets home. Next time on episode 2.28, Fatherless, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 27 and Don't make me separate you two. You keep on using that word. Moar. Cherido. Moar. Cherido. Oh, if it isn't the loser who should be dead. Just some war crimes, no big deal. Quattro endangers some children. Again. Bright talks with his mouth full. Two can keep a secret if one of them is Blex. Jared and Moar tempt fate. And feelings are boring, kissing is awesome. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with us in person by coming to scenic New York City and shouting, Jamaican is an iconic Gundam antagonist, as memorable as McVeigh, and as sympathetic as Rambaral, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The music for the TVN Shopping Channel segment was Renovation by Airtone. The on-hold music during the talkback was Elevator Music Part 1 by J.U. And the music during Tin Fish was Trance Is Ambient Cinematic Trance by White Wolf. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. And the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. This sounds actually like they're your, like your mic is sounding louder than mine. Talk into your mic a second. Hey. Yeah, these are for your mic. Oh, no, that's because I have your mic. Sorry, I have your mic set all the way down. 
Okay. Oh, yep, there we go. That's the way I think of it supposed to sound. <laughs> I get very uh, blue around the holidays and cry about everything, including happy things. Tom will tell you earlier today, I saw a video of a guy um, in Indonesia or Malaysia. Like the language looked familiar, so I thought Indonesia, but Malaysian is very similar as well. And he had rigged up his moped so that he could carry like eight dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're not in like cages or anything. They're all p perched on top of barrels and boxes and whatnot. <laughs> but it's just this dude and his eight dogs perched on his moped and they all look so happy. The dogs, the man, everybody just looks thrilled with this whole setup. And I burst into tears. I got, <laughs> I just started bawling. Yeah, that this is the last episode of 2019. Yeah. Dang you. Yeah. It's been a roller coaster. 2019? Yeah. But at least where the podcast is concerned, more ups than downs. I don't think you can do that with a roller coaster. I, I know, but somehow. <laughs> maybe in space. In space, you could do more ups than downs. Yes. <laughs> Except in that up and down have no meaning. Direction and opposite direction. <laughs> Why is there an unusually high concentration of sad boys in space? The sad boy density is very high. <laughs> Minovsky particles and sad boys. Maybe Minovsky particles interact with the biochemistry of teenage boys, increasing their sadness. Exponentially. I maintain they don't have therapy in the universal century. They just tell you to get in a mobile suit and work it out. And then eventually you die. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> and then Nina starts crying again and we have to take a 15 minute break I don't even know if I can say that <laughs> it's a lot I'm not sure that you should and, and yet it is like, I, mean, I, I can rephrase I can rephrase what happened in episode 26 of First Gundam are you trying to do it from memory mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my god oof oof what do eggs have to do with anything? <laughs> Thanks for having me on the program, Lieutenant Nina Nina's Dotterson. It's great to be back. Oh, oops, I shouldn't. <laughs> Nina Nina's Dotterson? <laughs> Spoilers. You want to say that with more sibilance? Spoilers. Spoilers. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> My ears. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon.